And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, May 19th, 2020, and I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you, Pam? I'm great, but I think the sun decided to not join us today. I'm very sad about that. I thought it was supposed to be April showers and May flowers, but I think we're having May showers also. Yeah, maybe things are a little screwed up right now, including everything going on with COVID. (laughs) I think so. I think so. So speaking of COVID, uh, do you have some updates for us uh, in terms of patients this week? I do. So last week, we had 56 positive patients. And this week, I'm proud to say we have 52 positive patients. Last week, we had 12 rule outs. And this week, we have four rule outs. Um, in terms of deaths, so we did go from 44 to 47 deaths. And we um, in DuPage County, last week, it was 5,121 positive patients or people in DuPage County today, this week, it's 6,076. And in the state went from 83,021 positive to 96,485. The state deaths went from 3,601 to 4,234. And for our good news, our our patients who had been positive with COVID, who had been discharged from the hospital, went from 240 last week to 274 this week. So that's a really nice jump. That's that's great news, and uh, and I certainly like to focus on that. Um, and it's great that the, the census of inpatients is going down, too, and that's a couple weeks in a row. So uh, that's certainly promising. How about uh, staff who may have tested positive? How's that going? So I think we had a couple more staff on the uh, who work for the hospital system who tested positive. I think we were about 26, 27 last week, and we're 21, na- 29 right now. And uh, for the physician practice division, they had been holding steady at 15 for over a month, and they did have two more, so now it's uh, 17. Okay. Well, that's not too bad, but uh, we certainly don't wish anybody to get that. So we've been hearing a lot in the news about controversy regarding how a death is classified, whether it's classified as a COVID death or otherwise. And we've been hearing a lot about they tend to um, default to COVID deaths when they have COVID. So I'd like to ask you, have there, have there been deaths of people at the hospital that were on hospice already that have been attributed to COVID? Yes. When, when we count our number of patients who have died related to COVID, we don't care if they are hospice or if they are regular inpatient. So we do count all deaths of people who have COVID um, when we're giving our number of COVID patients who have died. And that's also the number we do provide to the state as well. So there's a possibility that in some of those numbers, there's some folks who unfortunately would have passed on anyway, correct? Correct. And that's, for us, um, what it tells us is if somebody is on hospice and is, and does not want life-saving measures, just, because they have COVID, we don't 
go through anything extra, but we would have gone through nothing extra even without COVID. So, yes, there was quite a few, actually, that were hospice patients that did pass from COVID. I I saw something on uh, television yesterday about a lady who's a reporter that uh, has recovered from COVID, and she was donating plasma, and I've heard a little bit about that. Um, what, What might the benefits of that plasma be, and do we even know yet? Well, I think the benefits are really exciting news. We currently have been giving uh, plasma to some of our patients who are ill with with uh, COVID-19. Right now, we have utilized plasma 11 times on patients, and what that means is it's it's um, blood that has antibodies for COVID in it. And what it does then is when we give it to somebody who is ill and um, and is progressing in their illness to starting to be seriously ill and, and requiring potential intubation, et cetera, it does um, help that patient fight off the illness and not deteriorate as much as they might have if they had not gotten the plasma. So on the first three cases that we used plasma, all three cases, the patient was near the point of requiring intubation probably within the next few hours. And in all three cases, after they gave the plasma, the patient started to get better and um, and within five days was returning back to health um, to the point that they would be able to leave the hospital and continue to recuperate at home. So that was really important and really and exciting. Now, if you wait too long, just like in anything, and you've already got some more multi-system uh, failures because of the disease, uh, we have given plasma where, where it was too late and uh, it didn't help the person. But in general, it's very positive. And then some other exciting news is um, Elmhurst and Edward Hospitals were able to get from the government the, the drug remdesivir. And, you know, that we had been only on a special case basis, and then it was only being given to a few hospitals in the city. Well, on the second lot they sent out, we were able to get some. And so we now have that available for our patients as of yesterday. And what remdesivir does is similar to what plasma does. Plasma um, works through antibodies to fight the illness. Remdesivir works through a chemical to fight the viral expansion. And so when somebody is um, ill and progressing to the point that they might need intubation, if you give the remdesivir, it does fight off the viral expansion and help people be able to recover without continuing to deteriorate. So we're really excited about both of those things. And as a whole, in the beginning, um, you know, it was much harder to determine how to how to treat people with this illness that were getting seriously ill. But our um, the number of people dying has drastically slowed down. And I think more of the deaths now are people who were already DNRs and may have been in the late stages of life anyway. Um, but but we're really lucky to have both of these things available in our hospital. Well, that's exciting. I had not, uh, I'm not familiar with that drug uh, at all, I not even from the news. So obviously not from the medical standpoint, because I have no medical knowledge, but not, not from the news either. So uh, have you seen many... Um, first responders testing positive for COVID or, or, or for the coronavirus, I guess, and, and showing symptoms of COVID? So we do a lot of testing. So we do know um, if there are first responders in our testing. And in, in terms of at least the Elmhurst area, there are very few people have um, 
tested positive. Uh, I do know they've been really lucky, both the fire department, the police department, in having some a good amount of PPE, which hopefully has been protecting them. And then people are um, tested and stay off work and, and do the isolation if they've been exposed at all, even if they're not symptomatic. So, you know, it's, it's, they've, they've been very lucky and have very, very, very little exposures or very little positives. They don't have the benefit of um, having a beautiful semi-sterile hospital to work with either. They're going into into some uh, interesting situations, I'm sure. So the PPE is probably their only protection. It's the most important for them. Right. Can you give me a, a quick update on uh, testing capabilities for the hospital and the health system? Yes, we're continuing to do uh, all of the normal PCR testing, which is the nasal swabs. We've been... Um, doing the Abbott M2000 high volume processor, the Abbott Rapid ID Now processing, and um, also using AREB to process for us. So we're still running about 2,000 uh, tests a day, which is a nice number. Um, we also plan uh, to begin our COVID-19 IG antibody testing on the serum specimens next week. So that will be starting up here. And um, we'll be starting that with um, a couple of analyzers. So we'll be having quite a bit of antibody testing we'll be able to do. I think it's approximately um, 2,400 a day. Yeah, so that's antibiotic testing. Antibody testing is different than just testing to see if you're currently positive with uh with the COVID. So remember, the antibody testing tells you whether you've had it or have it, but doesn't tell you if you're infectious and if you're currently ill with it. You know, a lot of the folks that live here in town um, are concerned that um, we might not be able to go into phase three of the governor's five-phase plan if certain metrics aren't met. And in particular, um, you know, I looked up those metrics and the seven-day rolling average of positivity rate of testing needs to be 20% or less, and there needs to be a, a decrease over a 28-day period in COVID admissions. And then um, there needs to be excess capacity in ICU beds, surgical beds, and ventilators of approximately 14% from what I've read. So well, my question to you is, from what you see from Elmhurst Hospital's numbers, d does that appear that that the hospital's metrics are below those limits? So when the governor is looking at everything, the governor is looking at it by region, so it does not looking at one hospital only, but I can talk about Elmhurst Hospital. So Elmhurst Hospital, in terms of uh, testing positivity rate, has been below 20% for over seven days. Our, actually, our, our average over the last seven days has been 16%. So uh, we meet that one. In terms of decreased or stability in COVID admissions over a 28-day period, that one, um, we've had a, uh, some variability, but as a whole, it's a downward trend. And so um, I think, you know, technically we probably may meet that one. And our ability to surge over 14% um, ICU beds, surgical beds, and ventilators, because we're not just counting our licensed beds, but we're counting all beds we can use, we would uh, make that as well. So, yes, I think if it was just Elmhurst Hospital, we would be able to be moving into that phase very quickly. No, I noticed that um, 
you know, that 20% maximum positivity rate is, is one of the keys. And my question to you, if you could kind of look at it from a different angle is, is that 20% set so that, um, we're saying there's less people that have COVID right now, or is it more of a, um, a function of increased accessibility for testing that, that would make that that low, so to speak, because I would think before when we weren't doing testing on just everybody that there was probably a higher rate just because there weren't very many tests available, right? Correct. Um, I, I think, though, it's really about there's less, less folks that are coming up positive. So you're out of all the people we're testing, less than 20% of them are positive. So if we were testing less, it might be a, we would we might be only testing those with really severe symptoms and you would have a higher rate of them coming back positive. But because we're testing more, we're testing people maybe with not quite as severe symptoms. So we're getting a rate of more people being uh, of uh, a percentage of the people that we're testing, only 20% or less are positive. Last week, uh, you indicated that the, uh, the uh, elective surgeries had started again in, in, in about two, two and a half days. Uh, you'd already performed 62 at Elmhurst Memorial Hospital. So does that continue to be the trend? And do you think people are more comfortable coming in for elective surgeries as time goes on? Yes, I do believe people are getting to be more comfortable. We continue to see more scheduled. Um, so last week, I think we averaged about uh, 36 to 40 per day. And um, I'm anticipating next week, this week, we're going to be at the 40 per day. And next week, we'll be up closer to the 50 per day. And it, it seems that everybody coming in, nobody's had any concerns. Every, all the testing has gone through appropriately. And uh, we've had a lot of positive comments about how safe people feel. Well, and for those people that are considering it, I really would suggest they go to the website because uh, there's a lot of good information there that your uh, folks have put out there about how safe the hospital is and all the measures that you're taking to ensure that everybody's safe. What Can you give me an update on your PPE needs? I ask that every every week, but I just want to make sure that you have what you need there. So at the moment, we have what we need. What I would say is we will never have enough because we do not know how long this is going to last. And as we bring people back in doing other things, we're using more and more PPE just to keep everybody safe. And so there's going to continuously need to be demand for PPE. And then we also know that there's a potential that in the fall when we have both flu and um, potentially COVID um, there will be even more demand for PPE. So as much PPE as we can always get, we will need. We were able to um, get washable gowns. We got a 5,000 delivered uh, this week to Elmhurst, which really helps so that you're not using just disposable gowns. And um, so you're not burning through PPE as fast. And the washable gowns, you know, can be washed and they're safe. And then we can use them again and again, which is really um going to be a big help to preserving PPE. That's great. Could I ask you to put your business manager of the hospital hat on for a second? And and does it appear that the hospital might be eligible for some of the stimulus funds? Yes. Um, so the stimulus funds are available for for lost revenue and increased expenses. 
So um, Elmhurst Hospital lost, for example, in March and April, $26 million in revenues and just from elective surgeries. And then um, we incurred an increased cost of over $4 million. So that's a total of $30 million for the last two weeks of March and, and April. And so of that, we um, have received $20 million in stimulus checks. Wow. That, those are big numbers. They're a lot of money, right? Things you don't even think about. <laughs> you multiply that by all the hospitals across the country and the world, for that matter, and uh, wow. Now that's why when you hear billions of dollars and trillions of dollars being approved by the government, you're like, how could they be spending all that money? But just in hospitals alone, we go through so much. Can you, uh, one last question I'll ask you today, and that is about um, the inpatients that can't have their family members there with them, and, and what's being done at the hospital to help those patients and, the, and their families connect? Yeah, so yeah, so our hospital was built around the principles of families being involved with their loved ones in care, and so it's been it's been um, very hard on both the staff and the and the patients and the families that we can't have families in the hospital all the time like we used to have. So we try to do a lot of things to make sure the families feel. So, connected and the patients feel supported. And so we have um, patient experience uh, people in the hospital that go and visit with the patients and call the family members and make sure family members are kept connected. Um, we ask family members to bring in little mementos from their home that we can put in the room so patients can see and feel connected to their loved ones. Um, we have uh, gone in and done comfort calls with families so that they can get connected if the patient's not able to make the call themselves. We also have um, had video chats, so we bring an iPad in and we have the family and patient uh, video chat. Uh, we have also made exceptions to the rule because we, we know it's really important that um, in certain times that families are there. Uh, and so the exceptions have been if um, if it's a laboring um, patient who's going to have their baby, they want their care partner there, their husband or significant other, and so they're allowed to be there during labor. If it's um, a child, obviously the, the parents would be there. If it is somebody who has a language issue and needs some assistance or some kind of dementia, we may have a care partner come in, a family member come in and be uh, and be there with the patient. And if it's somebody who is in the last stages of life, we, we try to get the family in. It may be two visitors at a time, but we try to get the family to be in and have some time with them before they pass. Um, as we're starting to open elective surgeries, we are looking at um, starting to open up visiting a little bit, which we're going to start piloting, I think, the first week of June, um, having one uh, family member with, with the uh, person who's having surgery. But if there's been something uh, very, um, like, risky surgery and the family's very anxious, we'll have one family member in during that time as well. So we have made exceptions early, but we're going to try to make it a more of a continuous process um, in June and then see what we can do as we, as things open up, try to get family back. Well, I think that's great and that's important because uh, family is important to those folks. They need to have hope and uh, especially the COVID patients. Um, so it's great that you're finding ways to connect the patients with families. I, I thank you again for your time. 
again, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the uh, healthcare heroes that, that work at the hospital, and uh, we appreciate all of you. Thank you so much, and you stay safe this week, and, um, and we'll get back together. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Pam. Bye. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. This is Bob Robertson, Sr. When I have insomnia, I listen to Robbie and Rick on the E-Town Lowdown. Why don't you? And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with Lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. Did you know that one ponce a time Elmhurst was home to one of Illinois' premier roller skating rinks? From 1956 to 1989, the Elm Roller Rink sign, a giant roller skate, beckoned avid skaters from Chicago and the suburbs. With its state-of-the-art 20,000-square-foot hard maple floor, the Elm was one of Chicagoland's biggest rinks, a massive pipe organ played by talented musicians such as Tony Talman and Paul Swiderski, set the tempo for casual skaters and competitive members of the Elm Skate Club. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. Yeah, so roller skating dates back to the 19th century, but its heyday came in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. In mid-century America, roller skating was the nation's number one participatory sport, and avid skaters actually called themselves rink rats. Now, Chicago is the epicenter of the movement, and popular rinks like the Armory, the White Palace, and the Riverview Rink were just a quick train ride away. But as the suburbs grew, skating rinks moved west, and none could hold a candle to the elm. When Bill and Lynn Fuchs built the elm, they invested in a state-of-the-art hard maple floor with layers of sound-deadening material beneath. This greatly reduced noise and gave skaters a smooth surface upon which to perform, aided by a fine coat of rosin. They also invested in a custom 1,000-pipe Wurlitzer organ the size of a double-wide garage, which was suspended above the floor. The master of the organ was Tony Tallman, who treated the Wurlitzer the way a car enthusiast might treat a high-performance automobile. He constantly tinkered with and customized the organ, turning it into a -a one-of-a-kind instrument. Tallman provided the tempo for casual and competitive skaters for more than two decades. And one aficionado would note, you didn't just hear the music, you could feel it. Skate guards kept decorum, and skaters often dressed in elaborate costumes, performed complex artistic and dance routines. Now, the Elm was the incubator for several generations of very talented competitive skaters. Members of the Elm Skate Club participated in artistic dance and speed skating competitions, sanctioned by the Roller Skate Rink Owners Association. The Elm Skate Club led its division for six years with a bumper crop of highly skilled athletic performers. In the late 60s and early 70s, roller rinks began to see a decline in attendance, but disco brought them roaring back to life. With its lush sound and four on the floor beat, disco proved very well suited to skate dancing and a new craze began. The craze ended with the 70s. Events like the infamous disco demolition heralded not only the end of the music, but the end of the rinks themselves. In the 1980s, attendance began to decline. The rinks were large and very difficult to maintain. Liability insurance proved harder and harder to get for a pastime that involved more than a few falls, bumps, bruises, and the occasional more serious injury. 
Now, the Elm temporarily closed in 1985 when it looked like the owners wouldn't be able to get liability insurance and reopened again for a few years. But in 1989, it closed its famous green doors for the last time. Today, only a handful of rinks still dot the landscape in Chicago and the suburbs. But any good skater who experienced the Elm in its heyday will tell you that none of them could hold a candle to our beloved rink. I'll say... Dave, I mean, I remember uh, skidding a few knees there, and I love that place. It was right by the miniature golf, the bowling alley, and Dispenses Kitty Kingdom. That was like a whole entertainment campus over there. That uh, sounds that sounds great. You know, I was lucky enough. Uh, uh, they um, uh, Lexington Square is where uh, uh, the Elm used to be, and they actually dedicated a tree uh, to Lynn Fuchs, um, uh, who's in residence there, uh, just shy of her hundredth birthday, actually. Oh, nice. And doesn't the museum have an a exhibit coming on about this? Or, I'm sorry, it's a, a, a webcast or something, right? So, yeah, we're, um, we, uh, uh, we're, we're doing a whole series of mini documentaries. These are kind of three and four minute shorts with a lot of historic footage. Uh, we've got interviews with this particular one we're about to do. And so we're going to give a short history of the Elm. And with that, you're going to get to actually hear from some of the folks that skated there in the heyday and see a lot of really cool rare pictures. So we're doing about one of these a week right now. That sounds like a lot of fun, especially for some of the people that spent some time there when they were growing up. Yeah, I wish I had seen it. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.